Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of DarkCast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. This episode will discuss sensitive and potential triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and trauma, and will contain details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find offensive, disturbing, and or distressing. This episode may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo. And this is M.W bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Black indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So, welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. Mary Weather, whom I call M.W., blogs about true crime. Not only does she do the research, she has her own podcast called Ominously Positive Podcast. Her written work is always free to use because her goal is helping cases. And I love to give credit where credit is due. The best way you can support MW and these cases is to share. Our Precious Hope, St. Louis, Jane Doe, will be having her 40th anniversary on February 28th of being unsolved. This case has gained notoriety for seemingly being simple to solve. However, it is one of the most tangled and confusing murders to date. The passage of time has only increased the difficulty, but at first, even the lead detectives thought it would be a quick solution. This is the story of Our Precious Hope, St. Louis Jane Doe. So the original version of this story most commonly told about how Precious Doe was found. On a cold day on February 28, 1983, in St. Louis, Missouri, two men, often described as looters, entered an abandoned Victorian home. At one point, it was renovated into an apartment at 5635 Clemens Avenue in the city's West End Caban neighborhood Precious Doe was found in a basement room of the building. One of the men flickered a light, possibly a cigarette lighter, and the illumination highlighted the headless body of the child Jane Doe. Her body lay face down, and her feet pointed to the front of the building, and her head area was pointed to the back. They thought she was a mannequin at first, but soon got the police. Doe's body was found in the home's basement in the boiler furnace room. This room had dirt ash, asbestos, and leaves inside. There was also debris from the building itself on the ground. It was also damp, and a bit water was running. The home had no electricity, and the furnace room was the darkest. This is the room Doe was placed in. The address, 5635 Clemens Avenue, was a large red brick building with white stone trim. Above the door frame, in Latin, is the inscription Domi, the word for home, but Domi was the name of the apartments. The front door in the south is described as a red front door, which would have been visible to those around. The red front door with sizable white stone trim that was ornate. 
The building is three stories tall and in its apartment form. It held 24 apartments with eight on each floor. It had been abandoned, according to the papers, sometime in 1974. However, locals say that the building had been used longer than that. This apartment building was in the local children's routes to get to a popular park. The park was less than half a block west of the scene. Kids from all over the area would migrate to the park. They would use a walkway strip that had a two-way traffic through the area called Ruth Porter Mall, but now it is called the Greenway. By neighbors in the area, they described the neighborhood of the 5600 block of Clemens Avenue at the time as overrun with drugs and prostitution. This being what it may, it was not void of children or family life either. The area had a mixture of occupied buildings and abandoned buildings. The public has never been told much else about who discovered the body, but the most recent documentary explains that the two who found her were young black teens at the time. It is said this discovery negatively impacted them, so the shrouded details on the actual discovery account are probably because people wanted to protect the young teens. Law enforcement officials ruled these two boys. It is believed that they implied that they were ruled out through the DNA process. Once the law enforcement arrived, they thought she was a discarded prostitute, but they saw she was only a child after turning her over. Leroy Atkins was the newly appointed first black commander of the Homicide Division. Atkins, whose heart was with his community, wanted to bring closure to Precious Doe's case. It was essential to stop the killer or killers, get justice for Precious Doe, and show St. Louis, Missouri's black community, that law enforcement was on their side. St. Louis has a history of aggressive segregation, and many areas sit on the invisible lines of the not-so-distant past. The Del Mar Boulevard, for example, has been referenced as the Del Mar Divide. The segregation lines in the city were upheld even after official desegregation. Even to this day, some still try and hold to old traditions. The rippling effects cannot be ignored as a larger picture of Little Doe's case. It is important to note that Doe's body location is not far from the Del Mar Boulevard. The area where Doe was found is demographically black. And in 2020, West population was 71.5%. In 2012, the area was 98% Black, and historically it seems similar. In new clips of Doe's investigation, crowds of young Black children watched the investigations unfold. The event was big, and it affected the community deeply. And estimated that between February 20th and 28th of 1983, in the days leading up to the discovery of the body, Residents near the abandoned apartments reported that nothing seemed wrong. Now, today, the area is known as West End, but previously it was called Caban and was part of a large community. The residential development happened by 1900, which means many buildings were built from 1890 to 1920. The area has a vibrant history, but around World War II, people began to move, and from there, the area fought economic decline. So it was a Monday, February 28, 1983. 
This day, precious dough was discovered. The weather for the day was fair and mild, according to the reports in the local newspaper. The lows were in the 30s, and the highs were 50s. It was possible to have some rain as well. Detective Burgoon had said it was not cold for the usual weather. Most stories about this day will say that the day was very cold, but it seems that it was an assumption or a generalization. The actual version is more straightforward than the story that I'd mentioned in the beginning. Two black teen boys lived nearby who discovered her body. They lived only one minute walk from their home to the back door of the abandoned apartments. The boys didn't own a car, but had a go-kart. Their names at the time were unknown, and on that day, because of the unusually warm weather, family and friends began to gather for a barbecue. The two left the gathering together and returned to their family to tell them all they had found a body. According to a family member of one of the teen boys who described the discovery on his behalf, a group of the gathering had seen the body. They did not believe the boys when they said that they found a body. So, a group of six to ten people went to see it. The family members of these teen boys described how nobody realized that the body was missing her head. They dusted off the body because it had been covered in leaves. The discovery frightened them, and they called the police. However, some group members separated and did not speak with the police. Family members of one of the teen boys that did pass away gave the account on their behalf for the documentary. Sergeant Brian McGlynn, a St. Louis Police Department sergeant homicide detective and a current officer investigating the case, were interviewed in the Our Precious Hope documentary in 2022. They had not heard this version of the story before, but were not surprised. According to McAllister, a child who was on the scene that day, while the crowds waited outside, heard there was a body discovered. However, within minutes of the law enforcement investigation, they started to hear through the crowds that the body was a child. M.W., with their extensive background and research, also found out a record of September 1st of 1972. Samuel S. Blockton, 47-year-old, by state in maintenance, lived at these apartments. Blockton was accused of killing three co-workers. Police said Blockton had previously served five prison terms, including six for 20 years for murder. Blockton may have had a female getaway car driver for the co-worker killing. Thanks, M.W. Detective Joseph Burgoon of Homicide gets a call at his office that the police needed them on the scene. Burgoon calls the police uniformed officers. Police worked from the 7th District Police Station. Detectives worked from headquarters downtown at 1200 Clark Avenue. So around 1.30 to 2 o'clock that afternoon, every member of the homicide responds to the call of a suspicious death. They arrive at the scene after the police uniformed officers catch the homicide unit up with the information they have. The uniformed officers told Burgoon about the two men looking for a pipe metal story. In Burgoon's interview, he said that he was told that their car broke down or stalled and that their timing chain broke. The men hoped to find a bar to prop open the hood of their car to work on it. At 3.30, this was when most stories and newspapers reported that the two men had found the body. However, this is false. 
Though the account persists that this is the time and even Burgoon sometimes says 3 o'clock p.m., it seems more likely that this was around when the newspaper started hearing about the story. The sheer amount of years between then and now only cement certain things like this as fact. Burgoon mentions 3 p.m. in the TV show Sightings, but his account in Our Precious Hope makes this unlikely. By evening, Burgoon describes the investigative process in a 2021 interview with Our Precious Hope documentary. The first thing they did was interview people. This had to be done right away so that no detail was missed. The first to be interviewed were the two teen boys. They had remained on the scene. Then they expanded the interviews to people in the surrounding occupied buildings. This happened on the same day that she was found. Police went up to Caban Courts, expanded to Vernon and Maple, and talked with the people there. They went up to Goodfellow as well. Investigators called in help from the Metropolitan Sewer District just to help look into the sewers. Law enforcement canvassed the neighborhood to obtain the victim's identity quickly, but first they had to set up floodlights to illuminate and work. Hours after discovery, law enforcement sounded on all points bulletins nationwide. Many of these happened by overlapping and going on at the same time. Teams would come in and do different parts of the investigation. For example, crime scene investigators would do all the measuring. The evidence technicians would photograph everything. Crime scene detectives would do their process and make necessary arrests. But open cases like this would mean day watch investigators would come the next day, and it would be their case. The other team would take the next call and move on. These were the ones who did the initial preliminary stuff, and then the homicide unit would do all the follow-up work. However, in this case, they had to all work in tandem because, according to Burgoon's account, all members of homicide were called in, and uniformed police, medical examiner, and investigators for juvenile officers were there. Sergeant Brian McGlynn said there were at least 100 police, the residents from the nearby apartments and the media. So when Doe was found, there had been a push from the community for accountability from the city. Similar crimes have happened in the abandoned buildings of St. Louis. However, none so are as gruesome as those or involve a child this young. Sexual assaults where a victim is taken into a vacant building and then robbed afterward are commonplace. Sexual assaults of young women and girls around 16 years old where they have been picked up and taken somewhere else and then robbed are also common. Based on MW's research, if you want to get more involved in some extra sleuthing, I will provide some additional links and sources on the accounts of assaults in the area. The source has a list of violent crimes and vacant homes, and it spans from 1991 to 2017. Skeletons were found in homes, dead and mutilated dogs, beaten and sexually assaulted women, homicides, etc. So please read at your discretion. Despite so many people, they seemed cautious not to disturb the scene. Burgoon tells us that he was not allowed in the room with the body. However, he did see her from further away. The only ones allowed in the room were retired homicide detective Stan Stakowski, working at the medical examiner's office, and Detective Herb Riley. Burgoon went back to a different time to study the crime scene. When the interviews and searches started, 
they went to the medical examiner's office for more details about the body. That evening, they had a forensic anthropologist examine our precious doe. Atkins had at least 15 officers and detectives to work on the case when it was new. One resident, a child at the time, said that the neighborhood kids did not know her. They had accounted for themselves. In Doe's timeline of events, her murder glues the community together to protest and beg the city to do something about the dangerous and crumbling buildings. These buildings attracted higher crime rates, but because of the neighbors' socioeconomics, they were powerless to do much about the buildings on a personal level. Unfortunately, these issues persist to this day. Rumors of the area said that a brothel or prostitution loop was very close to this building. There are some newspaper sources to back up the rumors a little. In 1971, an article talked about the rampant prostitution in the West End. In 1983, police broke up a sizable call girl ring and alluded to the larger picture of prostitution rings and organized crime. The following morning, March 1, 1983, which was a Tuesday, an autopsy was scheduled for this day. They hoped to find the cause of death and if any sexual assault had occurred. The local paper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, runs the first story about Precious Doe. Unfortunately, it was not front-page news. But it does have some crime scene photographs. The writer was Bill McClellan. Sergeant Lloyd Huggins of the Juvenile Division remarks, quote, It's strange but we haven't had a single phone call yet from anyone reporting a little girl missing, end quote. Huggins explained that 20 children were missing from the St. Louis area, but none of them matched the description of the body. The finding caused panic among the area residents, especially those with small children. The police attempted to calm people, quote, we want people to try to remain as calm as possible, end quote. Captain Leroy Atkins from Homicide announces that law enforcement was unaware of any missing black children from the metropolitan area. The professionals that worked the crime scene remarked on how horrible it was. Quote, Just when you think you have seen about everything, you see something like this. End quote. Says Stanley Zatukowski, former homicide detective of 20 years and now a medical examiner investigator. The first newspaper story described Doe as 10 years old naked from the waist down, wearing a yellow V-neck sweater. Her hands were tied behind her back with a length of a jump rope. Unfortunately, the paper says jump rope, but that is not what was used. Before an autopsy, the detectives noted that her head appeared to have been cut off cleanly. And of course, there is additional and corrected information later on, identified in the documentary. Officers also noted that the lack of blood on the scene and quickly concluded that Doe was killed elsewhere and placed there. Quote, it doesn't look like she was there for long, one detective said. The body seems well preserved, but it was cold down there. It was too cold, even for rats. End quote. However, in a story posted for the same day, they updated her description of Doe just a little. Doe was now believed to be between the ages of 8 and 11 years old. Police said she had been dead for at least two days. They also said that they thought her head was severed cleanly with a large knife. George Wayne Bender, homicide detective, and Burgoon were assigned to the case. They had just solved another case, the Decker case, that was complicated. 
Atkins wanted the case solved quickly. Bender and Burgoon were partners in a homicide unit. Sergeant Herb Riley, who had also worked on the Decker case, was now working in the medical examiner's office and was a retired detective at the time. By March 2nd, the papers run another story. It is not on the front page. Police are still trying to find the girl's identity and missing head. They still searched the 16-block area around the abandoned building where her body was found. Police canvassed schools, vacant buildings, sewers, trash cans for clues. Over a hundred officers were out on this search. Missing person reports in the St. Louis area were checked, and messages were wired to law enforcement departments throughout Missouri and Illinois. Missing children reports were reviewed from the area and Metro East. However, no reports of children from the age group that had been reported missing. Twenty children were listed in the St. Louis as missing, but none of them matched Doe's description. Atkins, the first black man in his job position, appeals specifically to the black parents. He was asking them to double-check their children's whereabouts. Atkins contemplates why nobody has come forward yet and speculates with the press that maybe they did not realize she was missing yet. Atkins then appeals to the public to think about their children they have not seen in about a week. Finally, anyone with any information was asked to contact the homicide department directly. The autopsy report is back, but the paper made no official announcement. However, the report showed that Doe had been a victim of sexual assault and had only been dead two to three days before being found. They also updated the rope used, height, weight, and age range. March 5th, the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now, also known as ACORN, protests outside the apartment building. They want safety from the abandoned buildings and want them torn down or boarded up. Grant Williams, was on staff and organizer for ACORN, said 40 people showed up for the protest. The building was now boarded on the first floor, but access to the second was still available on the rear. Sunday afternoon of March 6, Doe has a memorial service at New Mount Gideon West Baptist Church that 60 people attended. Reverend Tommy Ringo presided over the service. According to Myrtle Hartfield of Skinker Page Union Delmer, this memorial helped encourage those working on the vacant home problem. And on that day, people said they had no leads, but tips were still being checked. Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, met with a mystery man who promises to lead investigators to the killing spot and where the head was. Quote, he was a nut, said Atkins. We checked out the information and it, it just was not any good, end quote. Eugene Fowler, director of CORE, Missouri, promised to launch its investigation if the police did not use the information within 30 days. According to the press interviews with CORE leaders and police commissioner Robert Wintersmith, this is the complete account of the situation. The man called the homicide division on Monday morning and said he had information. So Atkins met with the man in Clayton. Then the man demanded $900 immediately, but Atkins told him that even though there was a reward, he wanted information first. So then the man said he sent it to Atkins. 
The man called Kor and promised photos and tapes of the killing. Detectives disguised as investigators for Kor lawyers joined the meeting with Kor and the man. The man again asked for $900, but as they prepared to let him leave, he accused the detectives of being police. They identified themselves and took the man in for an interview. The man spent Monday night with the Corps at Chase Park Plaza Hotel. The Corps officials included Fowler, National Director Roy Innes, and Regional Director Solomon Rooks. They had a quote-unquote marathon interview with this man. They gave him $600 and promised $300 more if the information was correct. The man had a prior conviction of stealing by deceit. Once the detectives were sure the man was a fraud, they released him. By 11 o'clock p.m. that same Tuesday, Wintersmith went with Atkins and a second officer to Waterloo. There was supposed to be a hanging tree there. Zilch, said a homicide detective after returning at 3 o'clock Wednesday morning. All it was was cold. On March 12, Captain Leroy Atkins admit there are no updates to the case. Quote, this is a very frustrating case. We're still at square one, end quote. On March 13, 1983, the paper reports that psychics, a mystery informant, and a national civil rights organization attempted to help the police with Doe's case. Atkins said that the police had investigated a dozen or even a hundred tips on the topic. Some tips are more reasonable than others. One good tip was from a teacher who reported that their student had stopped attending school. This tip was investigated and cleared. The other tips were things like a woman who had gotten a flat tire on Poplar Street Bridge and then a vision of Doe's skull hidden at the base of the bridge. Again, this tip was investigated and then ruled out. Investigators have tried many things, including door-to-door -door interviews within the neighborhood where Doe was found, attendance records for schools throughout the area, foster homes, halfway houses, hospitals, and detention centers, and lastly, teletype messages to all police departments. Sergeant Herb Riley encourages the public to check on their neighbor's children and see if anyone is missing. Detectives speculated that since a parent did not come forward to identify Doe or report a child like her missing, Perhaps the parents were involved with the murder somehow. And still, by March 25th, Atkins says there was hundreds of leads that had been tracked at that point, but nothing panned out. By April 5th of 1983, St. Louis J.C. Women provides fingerprinting services for parents to put them in their kids' records. It was Doe that inspired this project. Later, in May, an anonymous letter was sent to the police naming a local man the killer, but unfortunately, the law enforcement could not track him down at the time. It is unclear if this incident is the same as February 26, 1986 anonymous letter incident, which is also mentioned in the documentary with Burgoon's interview with Our Precious Hope. Roughly seven months after Doe's discovery, detectives have now tracked down every black female between the ages of 8 and 11 in the St. Louis schools and even neighboring districts, Union City, Wellston, Ferguson, Florissant, and Normandy. Now it's nine months after the discovery of Doe, medical examiner Mary Case attests that Burgoon kept in contact 
during this whole time that Dole laid in the cold room. Atkins continued to attend community meetings to get people to come forward with information and show support to the community. However, around the time Doe was buried, he had stopped. Atkins had been keeping a large chart on the wall in his office. It showed what had been done and what needs to be done. Index cards with the names of people questioned were tacked to them. Unfortunately, around the time Doe was buried, Atkins removed the wall chart. December 1st, the paper runs an article about Doe and discusses her upcoming burial. David Hayes, the spokesperson for the medical examiner's office, said the burial would be at 11.30 a.m. in the Washington Park Cemetery, and the city was paying for the burial. Lieutenant William Wilson, deputy commander of the Homicide Division, states that the case is still under investigation there are no new leads, but they check missing persons across the country. Detectives have held public meetings to help spur people into coming forward to identify the girl. On December 2nd, 1983, which was a Friday, Little Doe received her well-reserved rest. It was a gloomy and misty day of her first burial. Our Little Doe was buried in a pauperous grave and it was unmarked. Quote, I'm really saddened that no one showed up, end quote, Sergeant Herb Riley said. Riley hoped that someone that knew her would go to the funeral, but he knew it was a long shot. The funeral was a sad and dreary affair, with her arrangements being made quickly. This precious doe was prepared for burial in a white body bag and she was dressed in a pink and white checkered dress. Four grave diggers still in their muddy overalls were also Doe's pallbearers. They carried her tiny body up a muddy hill in a plain white wooden coffin that measured five feet. Reverend Hayward, who proceeded, placed a flower and a pine bow wreath on her coffin before it was lowered into the ground and the burial attendants scattered flower petals over the single spray of pink, white, and yellow flowers. The flowers were a full spray of daisies, mums, and pie bowls, and it was all donated by the funeral director and a florist. There had been a simple white cloth on the casket affixed by a staple. And Reverend Hayward's words were, quote, We are here to commit this body of a girl whose name we don't know, but whose name is surely known to God." End quote. Four empty chairs sat to the side of our grave, and her service only lasted five minutes. I will continue on the second part of our Precious Hope, St. Louis Jane Doe's Story, in Part 2. And if you can't wait for the next part of this episode, I strongly suggest that you go to the links in the show notes and be prepared for Part 3, where I talk directly with the director, Edouard Bird Sosa, who created the documentary Our Precious Hope and Our Precious Hope Revisited. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Hands Off My Podcast. 
If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the mission, I do have a Patreon membership that will help the cause and bring more detail on cases and stories from the people of color community. If you yourself has a lost loved one or a story suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact me at email. Hands off my podcast at gmail.com. And if you are only able to support in another way, please give this podcast a five star rating on Apple or Spotify and continue to listen to upcoming episodes every Thursday, wherever you listen to your podcast. Dios te bendiga.